When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmrollag.com. I'm your host, Wendell Shum, and my guest today is Stephanie Lee Stevenson. Stephanie is the marketing manager at Green Tractors in Nobleton, Ontario. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Hi, Wendell. Stephanie, you have one of those names that is sort of both first names. Yes. <laughs> well, not it Stevenson, is. but yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like Pete Peters. That's right. And this is a totally unrelated story, but it's the only time I ever get to tell it. When we were on our honeymoon 25 years ago now, we met a very nice couple from Nobleton, Ontario. You're and kidding. They were both named Terry. It was Terry and Terry. Amazing. Amazing. Imagine their last name was like Terrison. Too much, too much, right. Okay. Okay, Stephanie, where is Nobleton, Ontario? Nobleton, Ontario is, I always like to say, pretty close to Canada's wonderland. Most people can identify that because we are surrounded by small towns. But then about, I don't know, half an hour south of us is the start of the greater Toronto area. Right. Which so is like convenient v- if you need to go to the airport. Vaughn likes to boast the that they are the, the city above yes. Toronto. Well, you, so you're <laughs> the city above the city above Toronto. We are. Well, we're <laughs> the small town above the city oh. of of the city above Toronto. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's still very rural here and uh, there's still a bit of farmland that hasn't been eaten up by developers and it's pretty rich farmland. Very hilly here though. So guys don't really love that. Dairy and a lot of horses? Piles of horses. King Township yeah. is known for and of all different types that we've got lots and lots of hunter jumper barns and because we're really close to Woodbine Racetrack uh, we have a whole lot of thoroughbred horses some standard breads but thoroughbreds hunter jumpers there's a few western and pleasure barns around but the majority are uh, of a different style indeed <laughs> okay so it does not say specifically in my notes here that you are a horse person but I'm going to guess that you are a horse person well, I'm not really. Um, <laughs> well, and but I grew up riding horses because both okay. of my parents uh, were involved in the rodeo, and my dad had a lot of quarter horses before he met my mom, and he had a stable of about sixty horses. And he, she kind of <laughs> said, "Well, you can have a trade. You can have me, or you can have your horses." So oh. he and his trailer took his horses to a sale, and I think he kept one or two. She was a horse girl, too. She was a rodeo girl, but by the time I was ready for them to get married, they were done. But I grew up around horses, riding them. All of my grandparents on both sides had horse ranches, so uh, I was able to play with them. But they had other animals, too, which down the line in my life. (laughs) I do want to point out that even though you have grown up and your whole life been super involved with horses, you wanted to make it very clear that you were not a horse person. I did want to make that extremely clear. <laughs> yes, loud and clear. I know. Right. I may okay. Have so for seven pairs of cowboy boots, but I currently do not have a horse, nor do I. I don't dislike them by any means, but no, I'm not a horse person. If you want to label me anything, it could be a dog person and a cow person. 
That's what I am. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you are, you're the marketing manager and you also do sales at I do. Green Tractors. And that is sort of a random kind of name, Green Tractors, because that could be a number of different kinds of tractors now, and but actually, I assume it's John Deere tractors. It is John Deere tractors, but fun fact of the day for you, I might give you a couple of fun facts, but here's one. <laughs> So we've been in business at this location for now 65 years, same family, which is really cool. Back in the day when they first started out, they actually sold a form of green tractor, Oliver. So that's actually why oh, yeah. our name, yeah, and we have seven locations uh, in central and eastern and northern Ontario. And uh, so we are all John Deere dealers, of course, but we go back to our Oliver roots. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And I've driven an Oliver tractor. You have? Fabulous. I did. It had, a, it had a steel seat. We. Ooh, comfy. It was for a neighbor, and he only used it, I think, to sort of pull hay wagons sure. around and stuff like that. That's yeah. the kind of job they need. That's cool. Okay, so marketing manager, I guess, are you a gearhead girl, too? Like, how did you get I into always tractors? Kind of, yes. <laughs> I always kind of have been a gearhead. I've been a bit of everything. When I finished high school, I... I actually initially wanted to be a police officer, and I did about two months of college <laughs> to be a police wow. officer. And a friend of my dad said, who was a sergeant in the emergency task force of SWAT team in Toronto, and he said, you know what, Steph, physically you would have no problem doing this job, but emotionally you might not not be able to shoot someone. So I kind of, oh. at that time, I was like 19 or 20, and I don't mean that so literally. <laughs> But right. he just thought, you know, on an as a woman, if I saw somebody that wasn't being so nice to someone else, he knew that maybe at 19 years of age, a uh, person who liked defending people she cared for, as well as maybe the public, <laughs> he knew right. that I probably wouldn't, it might not be the best fit, let's put it that way. So I switched into business and marketing. So I have a degree in marketing and then I completely didn't want to do any of that stuff when I finished school <laughs> <laughs> because I was filing and I was kind of, I guess, lining oh. out of people's pockets, but in a way that I was giving them ideas that they were profiting from and I was just stuck filing. <laughs> right. So when it went well, somebody else took the credit. Right. So I didn't okay, really I gotcha. love that so much. So I ended up working with my dad for quite a long time, which I'd always done in the background anyway. And then... Well, yeah, uh, let's go Let's go back because it sounds like, like, yeah, you did not have a traditional... Bringing. I don't want to say, you didn't have a normal childhood. Is that <laughs> Not <fair>? at all. <laughs> and not and it sounds all. like you were a bit of a tomboy, yes. which is a totally acceptable, non-gender specific description. <laughs> Yes, very true. Although I still always love makeup. I still always had dirt on my boots. So that's just how it is. And that hasn't changed at all. (laughs) Right. Okay. And so when you say that you went and worked with your dad, you grew up somewhat involved in the movie business? Yes. So um, (laughs) very involved. So my dad, this is a long story that I'll try to condense. Well, we're going to cut it down half an hour no matter what you do. Right. Okay. (laughs) My dad is originally from the south of France, and he had an incredible life there and lived through the wars and went to war as a soldier. And then he decided he wanted to come to North America. So he did in the mid-50s, and he was a horse wrangler. uh, Wait, so he... 
he, he's a French citizen that lived through the Second World War in France. You bet. Okay. And then, and then became a paratrooper and fought for the French in Laos wow. and Vietnam and Tunisia. And when we're talking about your dad, Stephanie, I, you just lost your dad like really recently. Like three weeks ago. For you to talk about your dad and share some of these these memories, like I really appreciate that. No problem, because they're pretty cool, and he has a, quite a story to tell. He really yeah. does, and uh, yeah, and he was eighty six when he passed. So yeah. that's why you know some of this timeline is is stretched because he had a long, awesome life, and we were mm-hmm. so lucky for that. So yeah. yeah, he was in Indonesia for uh, I think three years, and then he ended up in Tunisia, and he fought there too. And then he and his best friend decided, you know what? We made all kinds of friends in the American military. Let's go check out what the U.S. and Canada are about. So he ended up in North Dakota randomly because one of his buddies <laughs> was there, and I think mm-hmm. he stayed there for like five minutes. His buddy, <laughs> his buddy decided he was homesick and probably missed like the warm sea where they're from uh-huh. <laughs> in North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> so his buddy took off, but Dad stayed here in North America and somehow ended up in Kleinberg, Ontario. Kleinberg, Kleinberg, which is just south of Nobleton, just north of it is actually part of Vaughan. And um, <laughs> back in the day, it was a very small village. Now mm-hmm. it's kind of engulfed by the GTA. But um, there is a film studio there. It's still there now. But in those days, they made in the 50s, they made Westerns there. And he had gotten a job at the studio there. And there was also a a ranch there where they had rodeos and things. And he had a job there as kind of like a caretaker of horses, Uh like a, a, a wrangler, they would call it. And he always rode horses, even when he was in France, and took care of sheep. He loved animals probably more than he liked humans, if the truth be told. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of like Dr. Doolittle, like birds would land on his finger, and, he, and, and his cute French accent, he'd be like, oh, hey, little birdie. So, anyway. <laughs> I bet he was um, a hit with the ladies, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um so anyway, the time would go by. He was on these film sets, you know, just taking care of the animals when they needed the horses and different things. And eventually a director asked, hey, Frenchman, and his name was, his nickname was Frenchie. Everybody got mm-hmm. a nickname, of course. Which was totally so, acceptable back then, right? A hundred percent. A lot of people to this day never knew his first name as John. They always called him <laughs> Frenchie. So, and that's how he's known internationally, which is actually so cool. So they'd say, hey, Frenchman, do you know how to fall off this horse? And he'd be like, well, I jumped out of like 300 planes in Indochina. I think I can handle this. <laughs> <laughs> so lo and behold, he became Canada's first stuntman. And, wow. Yeah, really cool. And so, and in those days, stunts were a little different than they are today. He's been recognized over time for his efforts as a pioneer in the stunt business here in Canada. So what are some films that he would have done stunt work for? Oh, my goodness. Well, it goes back pretty far. So there was a show in the 60s called Forest Rangers, and he okay. he was very involved in that, and, and his dogs were actually in it, too, and he had a part. He had an actor part of Jack Brass. He was in that. So that was kind of the start in those days. Then, so are these oh my Canadian goodness. movies then, basically? Can, well, yes. Primarily, he did right. travel all over the place, but okay. primarily here. Oh, my goodness. I wish I had my computer in front of me. I could give you a whole list. But um, <laughs> so <laughs> all of the Death Wish movies in the 70s, as he got a little bit older, his body said, maybe no more stunts, Frenchie. So he became a property master 
a prop in a shot. So say we were filming a scene and you have uh-huh. your computer ahead of you and your phone probably nearby. Those are props and everything else is set dressing. That's kind of the quick and dirty right. difference gotcha. between yep. props and set yep. dressing. So he was a property master. As part of being a property master, if a show or or movie required firearms, because that is part of the person's, it would be on them, like a handgun or okay. something. Yeah, it's would important be, to the scene, yeah. Right, so that would be considered a prop back in the day. Because Dad had a military background, he'd always collected firearms. So, as time progressed, and as the laws in Canada for firearms progressed, as a prop man, he started realizing that he kind of foresaw the trend that a lot more movies in the 80s, 90s would have more action, therefore more firearms. And because he'd always been collecting them and been very involved with um, different organizations for education on firearms, especially military stuff, he became a gun wrangler or armorer firearms expert, whatever you want to call it, um, specifically for films and t- film and television. Then what, does he make sure that they've got the right gun for, for the so scene? Okay. He would, from start to finish, basically, he would make sure, he, if it was a period film set in the 70s, he would make sure that all of the guns were correct for that time period. Then, furthermore, he would train and work with the actors, work with the director, look at a vision look at the character and make sure that if those guns needed to fire, that they had the proper blanks, proper safety equipment, all of those bits and pieces that go with it. To make it look as realistic as possible and to make sure that the actors look like they know what they're doing. And make them look good, exactly. That was basically the job. You provide the equipment safely and make the actor look good. So Okay, so at at this point, you're like he's doing this while you're a kid. Well, I'm a kid, so I was loading magazines for him when he was getting ready to go and do, like, all the Police Academy movies. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was in Police Academy 3 and 4 when I was little. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're a star. I am a star, I know. Wait, I, I heard you were in something else, too. I've been in a few other movies, yeah. Well, I heard you were in, like, The Littlest Hobo. Well, I probably was an extra in it, but there are pictures <laughs> of me with The Littlest Hobo Dog. <laughs> Circulating. That's awesome. I love that you've been in like major blockbuster movies. And my sort of most important historical reference is a Canadian TV show that nobody south of the border has ever heard of. Which is funny because I have a friend who is a dairy farmer here in Ontario. And he has a big bugbear about the littlest hobo because of the continuity non-continuity <laughs> so oh. in one scene there'll be like a brown car <laughs> and then in the next scene there's like a silver car but it's supposed to be the same car and it doesn't have a hot he's funny so uh, right he's right anyway, that's, that's so, the problem we have with the so show not be- that the dog is as smart as like any of the people right okay. oh exactly good so, just so we're clear but yes i was i, I spent a lot of time on that set the <laughs> windless hobo <laughs> oh i love it i love it where was that filmed uh he, all over ontario like all over Ontario, Muskoka, oh. Toronto, but yeah, it was all here. That's amazing. That's I great. Know. And, okay, and then also some like 
American blockbuster movies, I guess. Uh, yes. 16 Blocks with Bruce Willis was a big one. And there were, oh my gosh, there were so many in between. There are so many. You traveled a fair bit with your dad doing I this did, stuff? I did, and almost every summer I would go on set with him. Well, every summer pretty much I would go on set with him while I was on summer leave from school, and I loved it. I, I ate it up, and it was well, it was cool to hang out with my dad. We were besties. But also, you know, it, I kind of had stars in my eyes. But it, it taught me a lot, too, because, you know, whether it was the guy that was pushing the broom on the, in, on the studio floor or Robert De Niro coming up to us saying hello, I learned at a very young age that people are people and good people are good people. And I didn't really realize that until I got older, that that was a lesson. I don't right. know if dad taught it to me on purpose or not, but that was his philosophy. And I will always have that with me. And it's so true. And it's funny because I can relate that to like my job here at the dealership. You can't judge a book by its cover. You know, that's yeah. part of that whole yeah. team. You know, somebody might walk in here and they've got their car hurts covered in mud and whatever else. And, you know, he he could be a potential lifelong customer you don't know that so anyway so that was a really cool way to look at things and when you approach people that way that are of fame you know they look at you with some respect too so yeah exactly like uh, people are are people at the yes, end of the day exactly exactly and some of them are amazing <laughs> Some of them are not always amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Just like ordinary people. And is this something like, was the whole family involved in this kind of stuff? No, I actually pushed it away. And that's why I went to college for <laughs> policing slash marketing. Uh, okay. Because I thought it was the easy way out. Even though it was something I knew with my heart and soul, I thought it was the easy way out. I thought it was just oh, no, you've got to go do something first, prove yourself first, and then maybe you could go into it, maybe, if you wanted, as a last resort. Meanwhile, I went into the real world and hated it, and then came <laughs> right back and had the best time working with my dad for a number of years. And wow. um, I got to, you know, it was pretty cool for him to say, well, my daughter's on one set while I'm on another and, you know, we both did a lot of shows and movies, and it was kind of nice if it was a, a heavy day and we had like 35 or 40 guns shooting. Both of us could be there and we, we could work together. Other times, you know, we could be, he could be get to go on this, on like 16 blocks, for example, where Bruce Willis only works eight-hour days. Uh, and I was working on 50 Cent's biography, Get Rich or Die Trying, and they were getting, they, but you had we to work were not with 50 getting cent? rich, but we were dying trying to get that movie made. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Are you saying that, that in the story of 50 Cent, yeah. like there was guns? <laughs> there were one or two. And you know what? He was actually, he was a great guy. And he was so funny because... I think anybody would have certain expectations of a rapper slash turned <laughs> actor kind of guy. And he was so thankful and grateful. We took him to the gun range with his entourage of like 10 million people. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that he, he felt safe and that all the other actors felt safe. And I explained to him why, uh, I don't know if you know much about 50, but, um, 
years ago. I'm probably not his target demographic. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> but years ago, he's actually, he was shot and he survived and like nine times. And Whoa. I explained to him why he survived because of this little thing called trajectory. And <laughs> he, his mind was kind of blown because nobody had ever explained that to him. And this is like, maybe a little bit inappropriate, but I did say to him, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the reason that you survived all of this is because whoever shot you was probably shooting sideways rather than with the gun pointed up. And when you're saying that's not the most effective way to hold, not really the best way to hit your (laughs) proposed target, just Mm. saying. So it's the, the rifling does sort of change and the weight changes and everything moves and the barrel and all of the science that goes into it. So, um, anyway, how to be a more effective gangster, how to be a more effective gangster. Don't turn your gun sideways. Turn it up. You're good to go. Pro tip. Hashtag. Wow. Yeah. Okay. The things we can learn. Okay. So this is quite the interesting career. Were you guys living on a farm at the time? Uh, nope. My parents have always lived in town here in Nobleton, but always grew up around farming. Always loved it. My grandmother says that my great-grandmother is the reason I have, quote-unquote, dirt in my blood, because I did spend a lot of time there as a child when my mom lost her sight when I was four. So Your mom's a pretty remarkable She truly too. is, too. She really, really is. Um, well, how did they meet, for starters? They met at the rodeo. Sorry, it wasn't the rodeo. It was a quarter horse banquet night. Okay. Called now, Quarterama now, many years ago. Okay. Who was the rodeo person? Uh, Dad was the major rodeo person, but Mom was involved in the rodeo, too. Okay, of course. Why not, right? Why not? Because <laughs> as well. Yeah, right. They're both yeah. cool, so hello. Okay, and, and you said that she is legally blind. She is 100% blind. Okay, but wasn't when she met your dad? No, they had just, I think they had just met at that point, or it was right, it was all around the same time-ish. And she was riding a steer in the rodeo, and she got knocked off and got kicked in the head. She was born with a condition uh, called retinitis pigmentosa, which basically means you have old retinas, old eyes, and your retinas are almost like, um, you know when a rubber band kind of dries up? Mm-hmm. That's what some people's retinas are like. They they have a real propensity to tear, and some people are just born that way. So she was born that okay, way. So- she always wore glasses. Any kind of trauma to your head or even jumping off the tailgate of a truck or out of a tractor um, can affect your retinas. A lot of hockey players have retinal issues um, from getting boarded and stuff. So she uh, experienced a loss of vision in one eye because of this accident with the steer. And okay. that was the late 60s, so technology really wasn't totally advanced yet. Uh, so she now has a glass eye in place of that. Did she have kids already at this point? No, no, she was 18. Okay. My so she, parents she were lost... 20 years apart as well. Wow. Yeah. So she lost the vision in one eye. She lost the vision in one eye. And then when I was four, so fast forward like 12 years later, uh, we were at Disney World of all places, and I'm four, and we'd been there for like two or three days. And she was experiencing the same symptoms she did from her last eye going, um, you know, when you kind of see stars, when you're a bit dizzy, when you Mm -hmm. are losing your sight, especially in the way that she did, you start seeing boulders of light 
big, big boulders of light. And she knew right away what had happened. So they, my dad and I came home and my mom got sent to Philadelphia because in those days, this was the early 80s, um, that was the best place to go for eye stuff. And they did all they could, but they couldn't repair very much. She did have a little bit of shadow perception, a little tiny bit of light perception, but that didn't last for too, too long. So as a four-year-old, of course, I was very confused and always decided that she wasn't actually blind. I didn't know why she couldn't drive me to gymnastics or skating or take me to brownies or McDonald's or whatever. As a kid, you're not... Yeah, you're not. I didn't get super it really. Under, yeah, and yeah. She you was just, my mom. She yeah. was great, and so I didn't understand. And to be, she will tell me now. She probably didn't want to say it then, <laughs> but she will tell me now that myself and my brother, who came two years later, you know, we were a driving force for her because in those days there wasn't a whole lot of work for my dad in Ontario, so he spent a lot of our childhood at West working too. So oh, she, okay, so she, she had to deal with a lot on her own. Right. Now, my grandmother actually retired early so that she could help mom. She was selling industrial steel, side note. And before my mom had me, <laughs> she was selling Ford cars. So I come from a long line oh, of wow. amazing female salespeople in no male-oriented jobs. So Wow. Some people are blind at yep. birth and never experience sight. That's Your mom, right. she could see, and then she couldn't. You were, so you were four, but you said your brother wasn't born, so... She's never seen You him. knew your mother when she could see. Yes. She's never seen your brother. Okay. Never. And he was born with the same condition, actually. So he is, he, um, he lost eye, one eye in a playground accident when he was seven years old. And then the other eye, oh, I'm going to say about eight years ago, started, the retina started tearing again. Uh, he did a couple less invasive procedures than what he could have done as sort of experimentation, but it was either, okay, we'll do the less invasive stuff and preserve the little vision you have left, or we could do some experimental stuff, but we can't guarantee you'll keep your sight. So he now has about 10% vision. Okay. So this is something your family has to deal with and is, it's a big issue. Uh, It is, uh, but we deal with it in a lot of great ways like my mom has she's on her fifth dog guide and she's a national spokesperson for dog guides canada in oakville tell us a little about that organization so dog guides canada is an incredible organization because number one there is basically no ailment that they don't have a dog for epilepsy diabetes (laughs) hearing People that are, have any, they call them special skills dogs. So anybody that's maybe in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, paraplegic, somebody who maybe has MS or any any ailment, really. They have dogs that can, for diabetes, these dogs can sense when you are going to have a sugar low before you do. Yeah. So you can get to safety. That, to me, is amazing. It goes way beyond having a companion. Right. And it, But that part is the true gift, in my opinion, from yeah. watching mom you know, getting her first dog 30-odd years ago. Yeah, 30 years ago now. I was 11 now that you know my age. (laughs) 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 But it's been been incredible to watch her and to watch all the people she has helped as their national spokesperson because from her eyelashes up and her eyelashes down, she's perfectly fine. And she decided back then, you have given me a gift of mobility and independence. 
I want to give back to everybody I can. As time has gone by, in those days, they were just training dogs for the blind. Now Mm -hmm. it has evolved into a whole number of different pieces. The really cool thing, Wendell, about the program is that it's of no cost to the recipient or their family. It's all private donations and from the Lions Clubs all over Canada. Even some U.S. clubs actually support it in the northern states, too. Um, So that's really special to see because there are some organizations out there that try to charge people for this service and for the dog and it is it's very expensive it costs twenty thousand dollars to train a dog guide for the blind that's crazy money and there are people that leave their estates and they say you know what when i go i want to provide five dog guides for people and they do that that happens every day it's really cool so i cannot impress how valuable it is for anybody with any kind of Uh, Even there are the emotional side of it for somebody um, that maybe has got some major depression because of their disability. It gives them a reason to get up in the morning because that dog is panting in their face and they need to go outside and they need to be fed and they need to be cared for. And those dogs in turn love that person without any judgment. And I can't say how important that is. It's been awesome. Really awesome. And mom has definitely... uh, helped a lot of people get the courage to go and get one so wow yeah Yeah. you certainly have not lacked for interesting and (laughs) important role models very much so very much so i'm incredibly lucky and so is my brother well it must be slightly intimidating for your new husband (laughs) a little bit a little bit (laughs) yeah because you're a newlywed really i am a newlywed (laughs) And he's a little bit younger than me too, so uh, we have very different, uh, very different upbringings, and very different experiences in life. I've traveled all over the world. He's traveled a little bit, but not quite quite as extensively. And I've had some pretty cool things. But what's really actually interesting because he is a dairy farmer uh, right. on the farm uh, we're on right now. He is third generation there, which is pretty neat. And then his dad on the other side, he's also, I think, third or fourth generation on that side too. So there's wow. a lot of milk running through those families. But What's interesting? And do you guys do you guys balance each other out? Then we it, it, really you know. do. And what's funny though, because I grew up, I guess on the surface, really around farming altogether through my life in various manners. Um, farming and the film business are actually so similar. I never had any kind of emotional scars because my dad was out working on Christmas. Uh, or because he missed right. my ski meet or something like that. Yeah. So I can understand, the, especially on a dairy farm, I can understand the commitment and I can understand the work and I can understand the why. And I think that that helps. I'm not saying every farm relationship will work that way. I also, I love being in the barn. I'm obsessed with genetics. I love being in the tractor. I love being in the barn more than I love being in the tractor, even though I sell them. <laughs> but <laughs> I love the cows so much. But yes, you're right. You nailed it. We absolutely do level each other out. And he's he's the best thing that ever happened to me. He really is. Well, hopefully he listens to this and hears you say that. I hope so, very too. Nice. Yeah. I tell okay. him that once in a while. <laughs> okay, so you, you had, uh, you know, this exciting film career that you were involved in yeah and then you got into a slightly tamer although 
still is wild. It's still exciting career in the farm equipment business. Was that yes. sort of a non-traditional role for a woman as well? Absolutely. And and the reason for the transition, um, well, there was a couple of reasons, but mostly I was watching my dad age. And uh, although he never, even to his last day, he never looked his age, but his age was finally, after all these years, being a stunt guy, being a soldier, all that, his injuries and his life was catching up to him. And it was getting to the point where he was getting a little more tired and, and the days are long. Uh, he, mm-hmm. you know, there are times where you'd work 22 hours and I'd sleep in my truck because I needed to be back in like six hours. It wasn't mm-hmm. worth making the two hour drive away from the city. So for him, that was getting hard to watch. And I wanted him to bow out gracefully. I knew something was wrong. I knew something was up and he ended up actually having a stroke. And so he had a stroke not long after I really realized, okay, something's up. And I had started to talk to my mom about, okay, I need to do something else. Also, right. the industry for us specifically, because we had a very specific niche, it's not like I was a makeup artist or a camera person. You know, they don't need firearms in every single movie and TV show. And the industry in Toronto, at that point, it was still kind of coming back it had gone away for a little while because of SARS Mm -hmm. that affected it as well as there were some tax benefits being offered by other cities in Canada like Halifax and Winnipeg Mm -hmm. Um, and so a lot of productions were going in other directions because they were still kind of reeling a lot of American productions didn't want to come to Toronto because of SARS and la 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 so there wasn't a whole lot of work and I was starting to feel a bit guilty. You know, I wouldn't want to take a day that dad could have because that's for mom right. and dad kind of thing. Yeah. So it was getting to, and he didn't want to take away from me because I'm, you know, the young daughter and it just got to the point that, you know, it's a really awesome gig when you're doing it, but when you're off, you you might be off for three months at a time, which sounds amazing, Yeah, but all of your friends and all of your family are working normal jobs in a relatively normal schedule. And so it's not like you can go away. You can by yourself, but that's not very fun. So I just kind of had to make the hardest decision ever and say, okay, Dad, I have to be done. And literally maybe three months later, he ended up having a stroke. So it, he survived really well from it. Everything was cool. It erased the 80s and 90s. So my brother and I growing up, he doesn't remember that. But the cutest thing about that, yeah, it's cute, is that he would watch a movie like one of the Police Academy movies. And he would say, oh, that looks familiar. And he wouldn't say anything to him. And then he could see his name in the credits later. And that was actually the most, it was heartwarming because he could vaguely remember something. But then at the end, he'd be, hey. I did that one. Or I recognize that wow. gun usually is what he would do. <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty neat. And so it was the hardest decision I've ever had to make. But for my family and for my dad, I really, I didn't want to find him somewhere on a film set. Bye-bye. You yeah. know, I, I wanted him yeah. to bow out gracefully. He had paid his dues. And it was getting to the point he was getting a little forgetful too. Like he might have taken a handgun but forgot to bring the blanks with him. Oh, did I put like real that. bullets in the gun? Yeah, that. they kind of go hand in hand when you need them to fire. So, yeah. okay. <laughs> so it was just, it was time. It was time. 
so I put out my feelers and I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't care because I needed to work. And, you know, so I started the closest thing to my parents' house was the John Deere. Our owners here are also old family friends. They were our neighbors growing up. And so I just kind of reached out to them and said, hey, do you need somebody like wash tractors or whatever? My brother worked here when he was a teenager. So I figured, eh, I'll give it a shot. Well, I was at the time, um, I was living in Brampton and we have a store in Brampton. And so, um, Carl, the owner here said, well, you know, we could use somebody in sales down in Brampton. I was like, wait, whoa, like I've never sold anything (laughs) and I don't really know anything intrinsically about tractors or anything. And he said, ah, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. So I, I started at our store in Brampton and I got to sell some small stuff, uh, mm-hmm. portable power equipment, stuff like that. And they put me in the parts department a little bit too, because it was a smaller dealership. And, right. um, but it actually being in the parts department, even though I kind of was like, wow, this is not what I was hired for at first. It was kind of a blessing in disguise because I got to learn everything from the inside out yeah. and I am a technical mind anyway. So it was, it was cool. And then about a year and a half later, there was some space up here in Nobleton. Being my hometown, I was moving back to Nobleton anyway. So it all worked out, and I've been here ever since. So that was 13 years ago that I started with Green Tractors. Wow. And did you ever feel like you were treated differently around the dealership as a woman or customers yes. treat you differently at all? I can say yes, very clearly. Not necessarily, definitely not from management or or even my coworkers. They were all great. Um, but there are some customers that were ha- over the years that <laughs> weren't really sure about coming around the partition and seeing a lady there. They were, they weren't sure, you know, there, yeah, I had a lot of interesting comments over the years, but uh, as time goes by, I realized it's kind of fun to prove them wrong. What advice would you give to someone, either a young lady or a, a young man that wants to get into that business? That honesty doesn't know a gender. Being honest with whether you know something or you don't know something, that to me is the biggest thing. I think that men specifically, especially of a certain generation, they are getting better, I will say that. But if they come in and they see that you're a woman and they expect that maybe you don't know as much or you're you're only the person there answering the phone, if you can show them a solution of some sort with being honest, they will start to respect you immediately, no matter who they are or who you are. I've noticed a shift that way. When I first started, not so much. I could say, oh, I'm not really sure, but let me get back to you. And they just kind of laugh and they go and walk to one of the guys. But that is definitely shifting. I will say that. There are some, because of geographically where we are, we don't have a lot of cultural, the same kind of, cultural changes that they do in Western Ontario. So we do have different cultures coming in, but most of them are actually pretty open-minded nowadays too. Again, when I first started, because we are close to the GTA, we do have some 
uh, Indian farmers that are, you know, buying 10 acre, 20 acre properties mm-hmm. north, north of Brampton, north of Halton area. And they're farmers from, they came here and maybe they're a businessman, but they wanted to buy a bigger property. And when I first started, they didn't want to deal with me as a woman. And to be honest, it's no different for like the Mennonite and Amish communities too. But we don't get too many of those folks because of our geography. Even still now today, that is a bit of a challenge. You know, if they're calling for something that they see in the Ontario farmer that we might have used, that that one's a bit of a tough one, but I respect it. I'm okay with it. Stephanie, you don't strike me as the kind of person who backs down from a challenge, so. Not generally. As, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little bit um, less militant about having to prove a point <laughs> i have no. i have i'm I, and my mom would even vouch for that but you know i think i've learned to choose my battles more wisely for yeah. sure yeah. yeah you got to get through life a little bit too oh exactly and but yeah. i will say that it's definitely it's come a long way in in the time i've been around but also so it has my has my knowledge and my experience and my confidence in what i'm doing so i think all yeah. those things can go hand in hand too but it takes time it takes time well, Stephanie, this is this has been fascinating you you've got a great story i feel like you've got a bunch more great stories. There, there's always lots. <laughs> Thanks for taking some time and, and chatting with me. I've really yeah. enjoyed hearing a few of your your stories and where you come from. I am honored to get the chance to talk to someone who's been involved in any way with the Littlest Hobo. So <laughs> that's a, a highlight Most for me. Most importantly, <laughs> I'll, I'll see if there's any like great, 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 great granddaughters left of them. And maybe we'll get you like a paw print signature or something out that. Don't tease me. Hey, Don't tease. I, I have hmm. connections. Hey, and some of my cows were in a Dairy Farmers of Canada commercial oh. because of my film business connection. So talk about bringing right. your life together. <laughs> That's awesome. There you go. Good stuff. All right. Thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> Thank we'll, you, we'll hopefully get a chance to chat soon. This has been the Ontario Whitecast. The Ontario Whitecast is produced by Christine Schoonerwood and is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Leg Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralleg.com. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.